Forbes Books presents The Great Digital Transformation with Gerard Zatvani, highlighting the pioneers that reimagined possibilities and reimagined businesses. This week, Jerry and I are happy to welcome Brian Evergreen to The Great Digital Transformation. Brian is an author and advisor on AI and digital transformation. He's worked with Fortune 500 companies to develop impact AI strategies, and as the founder of The Profitable Good Company, Brian now partners with leaders to create a more human-centered approach to AI. He's the author of the new book, Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence, what he calls a blueprint for integrating AI to uplift people. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. I'm happy to be here. And so you have an AI book, and we all know that AI is having a moment. But to write a book that comes out in the fall of 23, you had to have been thinking about this before it hit the mainstream back in November of, of 22. So tell us about the inspiration for this book and why now. So I wrote a post in 2020, actually, that I found January 2020 before the pandemic, where I said this year, my goal is to dive into creating a more human future in, you know, in the era of AI. And I want to connect with anyone and everyone that is interested in talking about that. And so I've been thinking about this for a while. And uh, ever since I really took on the role as the AI strategy lead for Microsoft US and realized that a lot of executives were not only interested in talking about the economic potential of AI, but also what is this? what are the risks and opportunities and how is this gonna impact society and impact the communities that we work in and the people that work within our organizations. And so um, I've been thinking about this for quite a while and uh, signed the book agreement last April uh, before Dolly 2 was announced or ChatGPT or any of that. Um, and so, and, and all in all, in, in terms of from start to finish, it was about a year of writing. Wow. And do you feel like as you were writing and then all of a sudden you're the Dolly and ChatGPT, you're like, oh no, please slow down because my book's just not ready yet. I, I didn't actually. I felt like if anything, some one of the chapters I I'd written about, um, it was called I wrote about epistemology in the in the age of of AI, I think I called it. And this idea of how do you know that you know what you know when there's all this misinformation and all this hype and so many people that there's so much economic incentive to try to position yourself as an expert. And then ChatGPT came out and that increased tenfold or maybe a hundredfold of more and more people trying to position themselves as AI experts. And if anything, it was a good test for whether or not the the tools that I'd laid out would, would work effectively in this new era. And fortunately, I feel like they stood up to it. Awesome. And Jerry, you know, a running joke on the podcast when it comes to AI is like, man, this stuff's been around for a long time. It's just that now more and more people know about it. Uh, Brian had this revelation in 2020, but when did you realize, Jerry, that this was not just going to be a passing fad like the metaverse? When did you realize that you knew that this was here to stay and this was not just going to be something that's on and gone? Well, my company has been working on AI since five years now. We've been investing and, and learning and exploring ways to make this thing happen. And, and really, two years ago, we started building a product that uh, would enable uh, my people to be more productive so that the AI assists in, in the way they they deliver their work and um, and now when ChatGPT came out was for us was like a perfect storm because we were there already we were there we actually had something to show we have a live demo we have people using it and 
And, you know, like when you compare it, people who are using it versus people who are not using it, you can see uh, productivity increases at an order of 20, 30%, which is not a rounding error. It's not trivial. And I was, right from the beginning, I was thinking that this is going to really disrupt our industry. It's been a long time coming. People has, have been discussing about this for quite some time, but now it's, it's all coming together. Now, the challenge is going to be to kind of separate the day from the night and understanding who is who in this space and who is bullshitting you and who is actually and understand something about the space. That's going to be the big challenge, at least for one or two more years. Because a lot of noise. I, I completely agree. Well, first of all, I wanted to add something. You, Joe, you'd mentioned I've been thinking about this since 2020. Uh, that's when I started thinking about writing a book to some degree. And um, But I'd say that in terms of when I realized AI was going to be sort of a, a thing was before it was sort of rebranded to AI in the broad discourse when it was just called advanced analytics. Uh, in 2014, I, I worked on, a, on an initiative for Microsoft when I was at Accenture. Microsoft was a client. And I had this overwhelming sense when I was doing the strategy work and digging into the Gartner and Forrester and IDC reports and seeing, oh, there's going to be this huge talent gap between data scientists and the and the demand. And we're seeing that today, right? There's, there's actually only, according to Gartner data, 10,000 or so data scientists who can actually build a full AI solution from start to finish. And uh, so if each of the Fortune 500 hired 20 data scientists, now there's no more data scientists for the rest of the world. And so it has been a challenge and it's it's only grown this year in terms of navigating you know who the who to trust and and understanding and thinking through that i think um i agree completely with jerry's comment that that's something that is going to be interesting to see i i actually made a a joke about um that show where there was the the guy that cheated on his girlfriend and it was a very public oh vanderpump um, rules yeah yes vander thank you yes vanderpump yeah. rules and and I made a I made a meme where it shows it shows that guy and and the and the tagline underneath it says I can't believe you tried to sell me you know an AI solution that you didn't you yourself didn't understand and the guy's like it was only one time right and so <laughs> I uh, and I I think that we're gonna see a lot of that I think that there's gonna be there's a lot of advisors right now who are quickly trying to pivot um, to being an expert on something that you can't just you know read a, read a few online PDFs or watch a few videos and suddenly understand. Um, not to say that it's completely insurmountable. It's, it shouldn't be an ivory tower either. Um, but I do think that there, there unfortunately is a temptation and I've seen a proliferation of people that have positioned themselves um, as if they're experts in something that they're not. And I think that the market will, the same way that Google results, right? When you first search something now, you know the first few things are going to be ads. So you scroll past them to get to the real content. I think the same thing's going to happen in the AI expert space. The irony is that ChatGPT will actually make things worse. It's so good in providing you the right answers and and really making making you look like you know what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's funny too because Brian, I would love to get your. I don't know if you're able to even talk about this, but you you worked on AI at Microsoft, but famously Microsoft got into bed with the folks at OpenAI to launch their Bing AI. More to my curiosity. If they've been working on AI, why was it important for them to start this relationship with OpenAI or just not even start a relationship, but like publicly state that, hey, we're a team on on this AI thing? That's a good question. I think that Microsoft has always had an ecosystem approach. And so if you think about it, 
you can't specialize in everything. And it's better, if, especially for Microsoft as a platform provider, if they can partner with the organizations that are leading in specialization around something like chatbots. If you think about in 2018, when they're in the room discussing, and I'm not saying this from having privy to it as much as just postulating, right? You imagine being in that room and discussing these people that are going to leverage this technology to do something really significant when it comes to chat or large language models. Why, why double the efforts? Why not at, for Microsoft as the host of Azure and where that's one of their main flywheels, why not pick the clear winners in that space and in the 10 other or 20 or 50 other spaces where it seems like this, there's the right experts that are going to really dive into a specialization and then have Microsoft be the underlying platform and then tie that into everything else. That's just a, a doubling of or tripling of efforts. It's amazing how swift that deal went down because all of a sudden everyone's talking about ChatGPT. Then a week later, there's this press release about the, the Bing A. I'm like, well, wait a minute, how did that? I mean, you were inside there. Is that something normal that Microsoft moves so quick to not only to, to create a collaboration, but announce it to the world? I mean, that seemed very fast as an outsider. I, I would say that there was. Um, they were working on it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Yes. <laughs> so I would say that there was already more than enough signal. I, I had some colleagues that had, and this is publicly known, I had some colleagues who had inside, you know, they, they had access to GPT-4 well before ChatGPT came out or GPT-4 came out publicly. So, um, and so I think that, you know, those, those developments and investments were taking place and that it was sort of a staggering of announcements more so than, you know, De December ChatGPT is announced. And then in one month, Microsoft made yeah. all of those advancements. That's not exactly how it took place. Okay, good. Good to know. Thanks for that, Brian. Because I was always wondering, because, you know, a big company like that, I can only imagine the layers and layers of people that have to be involved in a decision like that. So as Jerry said, they're working on it. There was, there was, there was yeah. some back channel conversations going on there. Um, and I will say that during the COVID, because I was there um, when COVID, you know, first sort of broke out, right? The pandemic broke out. And I will say that there were a lot of areas where Microsoft was able to move extremely quickly uh, to try to respond to the the need of of customers around the world. And so I, it's not to say that they can't move that quickly, but I think in this case, there they there wasn't a need to because because they made that significant investment. They knew they had the signal. They knew when it was time to start making their own developments alongside and leveraging these technologies. And they'd been doing that even since before GPT-4, right? Um, it's just this sort of all worked out quite well in tandem in the market um, yeah, earlier this year and, and late last year. Brian, in, in your book, you're talking about um, a blueprint uh, in integrating the AI with people. What I found, ironically, is that uh, there is a lot of resistance from people to actually use AI to make their lives better, to make their lives easier. Um, there is a lot of resistance. I would like to hear your comment um, on on how do, did you see that people would adopt and would uh, run with it? I like that question. And um, what I'd say is that I think it in a lot of ways comes down to rituals for us as people and and what how we define the good life and what we want the human experience to be and so i think if you look at it on, on it from a numbers perspective if you say well this ai is going to make you more productive um you know the answer should be an obvious yes but if that productivity means that part of my like for instance you think about a restaurant 
and you say, okay, I, I did a poll um, on this with with some uh, uh, some leaders, and and it was interesting. I, I'm guessing. Actually, I'll ask you guys um, just for fun. So, if you could choose between a restaurant that was, let's say, the food tastes exactly the same, but on the you're either having all robots. You've got a robot server. You've got a robot, you know, robot cooking the food and a robot cleaning the dishes. Right. Let's just just let's break it down to those, you know, overly simplified buckets. That that's one option. All robots. Another option, all humans. Something in the middle might be okay. I have a human server, and then behind the scenes, it's all robots. And then something kind of in between, a gradient of it is human server, human chef, and then the the robot a robot cleans the dishes. Let's say. So I'd be curious if you if you had to pick, and this is your family outing, like once a week you're going to this restaurant for dinner, not not just like a novel one time experience. This is your regular, this is your haunt, your local haunt, so to speak. Which which of those would you would you pick? Let's say the food is exactly tastes exactly the same. I would definitely not go for a restaurant where it's like hundred percent robots because there is no way you can escalate if something goes wrong. And I, I would really go to a place where uses this like well-balanced kind of a setup with with people uh, in the driver's seat, uh, managing it, uh, supervising uh, everything, and and making sure that the robots are there just to provide the smooth kind of uh, experience for the customer, like from delivery, uh, really fast uh, cooking or whatever. And, and just the humans are there to orchestrate everything and making sure that things are happening like really well. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the place that I would go to. Um, I, I would, you know, because it's, 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 uh, I've seen it, I've seen some automation, even in the, in the kitchen, uh, we've been working on some projects, uh, on automating the, the restaurant experience. So that definitely you can, you can provide a better customer experience. But I don't see this in a in a world where you you don't have the humans involved. I would definitely not like that. I feel exactly the same way. If I imagine a world where everything you're interacting with, other than someone you happen to brush alongside as you wait in line or something, everything else is is machines. That doesn't sound like a very human. It sounds like a cold kind of lonely world. And so I think that's one reason that we've struggled to adopt when if you, you know, zoom back out to kind of the enterprise level, I think that we have sometimes black and white thinking where it's either that you're going to automate completely and go full, you know, robot for lack of a better phrase, or you're going to have this be intensely manual and, you know, that way, at least you're preserving the human element. And I think that it takes a, a, a high degree of strategy and, and forethought to put together a plan to say, okay, these are the experiences we're interacting with our brand and our company where it matters that that's a human experience, that that's personal, that there's a connection being made. And these are all the things where it, where it doesn't, let's say, or maybe it's not an interaction with our brand. Maybe it's just something behind the scenes, like dishes being washed in the kitchen of a, um, of a restaurant. I, I don't think that I would, one, I wouldn't even likely know unless they advertised it. And two, I wouldn't care because that to me, that's as long as I'm enjoying my experience with the server and interacting with people, you know, like we, we go to a local Italian spot uh, every Thursday and um, it's family owned and it's, you know, been in that family for decades. And right. And so that that story, that human experience of going and seeing those other people and the fact that they know my name and I know their name is is part of the, the experience. And so if you generalize that across when you're calling into your local credit union 
And for me, at least, they they switch back from an IVR that is full robotics to, you know, clicking and doing a digital menu to, you know, maybe you wait a minute or two, but then you, you get on with someone that says, hi, I'm so-and-so from one city over from where you are. And they are able to, um, you know, su- provide that human experience there on that phone call and then enable those agents with tools so they can be more effective but preserving kind of that human experience when it comes to interacting with customers. And what I think, you know, in terms of the book, I think that it can be tempting in the face of automation with all of these tools to think, how can I use this to remove the human element from my organization so that therefore I can reduce cost? And I would argue that that is actually long-term, not an economically viable strategy or, or plan, rather to say, how can I preserve the human or even amplify the human element of working or you know, having an experience with my company, but then empower those humans to be more effective and to do better to and for our customers or our clients with these digital tools? And so that, that, would, be, that would be the lens of, that I think is a long-term, uh, thinking more about expansion with these sorts of tools, uh, how to add to your top line as opposed to driving cost out of your bottom line by removing the human element from your organization. I think there will be organizations that do that. And then either they'll make the, they'll re- make the market rebound from the reaction, the negative reaction that they'll see and, um, and recover. Or th- I think there might be some that won't recover altogether. And there'll be some household names that we're familiar with today that, you know, will go the way of Blockbuster because they, they went too, too full in the automation direction. Without getting too far ahead, uh, the book is called Autonomous Transformation. How would you define that? What are characteristics of autonomous transformation? So autonomy is um, the right or power of self-governing. And then transformation means to change the nature or structure of something, to transform it. And so if you combine those and you say, okay, we're in moving from an analog or digital paradigm, we're moving toward an autonomous where where a machine can self-govern. In other words, make a decision on its own without a human in the loop. And, um, and then by in, in so doing and in, in applying that kind of technology, you're transforming a market offering or some kind of value that you bring to the world. I'm glad you asked this question because a lot of times I think people think digital transformation would, would cover that, right? It's become this sort of ever-growing blanket that covers anything and everything that plugs into a wall these days. And, um, but the issue is that there's a lot of things that are called digital transformation where it's not actually transformative. So the, the process is exactly the same, but now it's digital. And, um, and so I, for that one, I thought, okay, let me try to start with the definition and work backwards to come up with the right term. And what I came up with is reformation. So the definition of reformation is to vastly improve something without changing the nature or structure of it. And so if you think about, if you have a process and you're, you're, you're six times more efficient that because it went from analog to digital, that would be an example of what, what I've termed in the book, digital reformation. Whereas digital transformation would be something like, you know, Uber, where you're creating a whole new gig economy that didn't exist before, or Netflix that is disrupting and changing the way that we experience and all these new business models coming out of how we think about entertainment. Um, those, those would be transformative. But if you have a, a company that's doing the same thing and is delivering the same value to the market, but now it's more efficient, that's still valuable work. It's just not transformative. So I think it's important to add a little bit more clarity you know, to the lexicon. What you call reformation, I call digitization because I've seen it a lot 
um, people just wanting to just transfer their processes from a, let's say, paper-based process into a digitized process. But if you don't transform anything, the steps are still the same. You become a little bit more efficient, but it's the same process. You don't transform anything. It's more, I call it, you digitized it instead of uh, having a digital transformation. But I, I guess reformation is kind of a wider term. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, done with digital technology. It can be some other type of technology that um, enables you to become faster in your process. I agree. And I think that there's, like I mentioned with that IVR example of, of calling in and having a fully automated, you know, no impossible to reach a human experience with customer care versus being able to the first, the first person who answers the phone is a, is a person and not a machine. I, I, I consider that that's an analog transformation, right? Where somebody went in on digital and they tried something and then their, their clients are leaving or their, you know, their customers are, are changing over to a competitor and they're reacting by saying, okay, actually we need to peel this back. Um, and I think we've seen some of that in the, in the sort of, since digital transformation was coined in 2011, but I think we're going to see more of it now that there's so many more ways that you can try to automate or try to digitize um, your your the the business that you or the value that you bring to the market. And so I think that people will be experimenting more, and that there'll be more opportunities for them to say, "Whoops, okay, let's go backwards," because it turns out that something that we thought wasn't that important of a you know connection point actually made a big difference to our customers. So we're going to we're gonna shift that back. And for tech entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, Brian, uh, you know, it's all about what's the ROI. So how do we measure the impact and success of these autonomous transformation projects that you talk about in the book and hopefully to see forward in, in the future? For tech entrepreneurs specifically, what I'd say is that it's, it's an interesting time to be an entrepreneur because unlike maybe more than any time in the past, we now have a situation where there's such a strong proliferation of ecosystems already at play that if you show up just trying to compete on your own today, like look at OpenAI, right? They didn't just compete on their own. They partnered with Microsoft and you know we've seen how that's worked out for them. If we, um, if, but if you try to show up on your own today, I liken it kind of like just showing up to a you know, showing up to a basketball tournament that you think is a one-on-one -on -one tournament and you lace up and you, let's say it's Michael Jordan even, you could be the best in the market, right? And and you show up and you lace up and you you, you play your pump up song. For me, that was uh, Eminem, um, lose, lose yourself. yourself, of course, right? yes, yep. obviously, course, Brian, probably, yes. yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but right, you you run out onto the run out onto the court and you realize, oh no, this is a they have five people on their team and it's me. And and even if that was Michael Jordan, you know, to me, still the greatest NBA player of all time. I know that's controversial, but that's how I feel, and I'm I'm not going to apologize. And um and so right, but he would still lose to a five uh, a five player team. And so I think it's the same thing now in the tech space where. You could have an incredible offering, but you if you need to think about the ecosystem, and that's again another example of sort of that human element, right? Where you can't just look at it purely based on technical terms. You can achieve something absolutely extraordinary from a technology perspective, but it also has to include what is the, how does this fit into the market today? And and so that's probably one of the one of the most I guess pertinent things I would share with with. Um, technology sort of um, startup leaders in this space. I'd say from a, um, from a, in terms of autonomous transformation more broadly, what I'd say is that it's easy for us as, as enterprise leaders or as any kind of business leader to start with saying, 
wow, okay, there's this new technology. What am I going to do with it? And I think there's a little bit of that in, in the way you phrase the question, Joe, of like, okay, how do you do this in, the, in this era of tr autonomous transformation? And, um, and I'd say what I usually recommend is saying, forget about the technologies for a minute. Set, set that aside. It's okay. It'll still be there in an hour after we're done with this conversation or whatever, right? And start with saying, okay, what is the future of, of my market or my industry? If I could achieve, like, for instance, if you're a, a utility company, Imagine if a new, you know, if a new island arose from the Pacific and we, you were going to set a new grid, what would that grid look like? Instead of thinking, how do I improve the grid I have now? Because there's inherently so many limitations to that. Starting with what would the best possible grid with all the technological capabilities we have today, what would that, what would that be? And, and also the fundamental question, even like we're seeing now of, Okay, 17 of the 50 states in the US are de yeah, are no longer regulated. So if we're moving toward a, a self-generation future, then okay, what does that look like? What would it look like to be the market leader in that space and work backwards and say, okay, we're going to invest in developing self-regulate your self-generation options that we're going to test out in those 17 states as well as in developing countries. And that way we're positioned that if, if it continues to go down that path, even if not, we could probably have a profitable, we can have a profitable business. But if, if so, then we're positioned uh, to be the leader in that space. And so I'd say, and that, that you're not going to get to those kinds of strategies or, or vision for the future of your organization. If you start with, okay, ChatGPT, where can I, where can I fit this inside of my company? Instead, starting with what is the future of my of the market that I serve, the way that people want to experience value coming out of our brand and com companies like us, and and when you work backwards from there, ChatGPT or a large language model, or you know, they may play a role in that. It may also be like I mentioned that you actually need to abandon some of the automation that you've done um, and go for a more analog path for, let's say, your employee experience or something to deal do with your your customer experience. So. Um, that's probably the biggest thing I'd say is starting with that anchoring on a vision because there's so many hows that you can start with. If you start with how or even what with the technologies that you could end up distracting yourself and you could be making lots of logical, smart investments that, that prove ROI along the way or that demonstrate strong ROI. Meanwhile, it, like Blockbuster, you could be doing amazing work in 2006 before Netflix has introduced streaming. You could be doing heat maps about the best traffic flow and you can come with the best possible strategic agreements with local city or organizations to, to perfectly place every single one of your stores. And then when Netflix introduces streaming, you know, all that smart logical work that you did will end up being for naught in the long run. So, um, so that's, that's kind of the, the general guidance I'd say is to start with what is that future of the market or, or what future would we want to create? Um, if we if we cast forward and, and we say the future of this industry should be like this, regardless of whether it's possible or who's on the way to that, this is what it should look like. Okay, well, how do we work backwards? How can we create that, especially if you're a market leader? Brian, you mentioned something about startups and technology and whatever. I'm a little bit worried about this. Um, in two, three years from now, if you're a startup that cannot afford to pay for some AI assistance, some AI okay. bots, you won't be able to start. And that will make it prohibitive for startups to actually start. What's your take on this? That's a great question. I've thought about this a bit as well, because I do think that or the, the environment, the 
context in which startups can thrive is is one of the biggest contributors to strong GDP, right? And so um, I think that that what I would say is that the nature of ideas right now it's been can we create a sort of technical prototype and then can we scale that and get some initial customers and then hopefully you know get get Y Combinator get someone to either invest in us or buy us right depending on the trajectory that we feel like we're on and our risk profile and all of that. Um, and what I'd say is that I don't know that that's going to change so much. Um, I, I think that it, startups will need to be a little bit more strategic in the sense of it will need to be a combination not only of business model and technology. Like if you started a, you think about it, Facebook was founded, what it was launched, I think in 2000, what, four, five and um, that that wasn't that long ago when you think about it. But if you said, I'm going to launch a new social media startup today, well, the the market's already, look at look at Meta's threads and, um, you know, sort of what we're seeing there and, and in terms of the market reaction, I'd say that it's, it's, it's going to be similar probably, I think, in the AI space or in, like you mentioned, Jerry, across pretty much any sector. If you're doing a startup that doesn't have some kind of AI capability, I think it's, it's sad to me because it shouldn't be about the marketing of being able to claim that you have AI. It should be that you're creating something truly differentiated. And to your point, that will require um, investment. And uh, but I think, I think that what I would consider is if you can create a proof of concept where you can demonstrate the technical capability, you can still use that to get funding. So you might not need to, for instance, like the the amount of computational cost for large language models is enormous. We know that. Um, but if you're saying, okay, I'm going to use reinforcement learning, you know, that's, there's still some cost involved there, but there's other types of AI methods and methodologies that if you have the right technical team, you can still develop enough of a prototype to prove out that yes, this concept is possible. And this is why we think the market will react positively to it. And you might have a little bit more of a design of experiments, maybe in collaboration with investors than, than we're, we've been seeing up till now. Um, but I don't, I don't. I hope, my hope is that it won't be prohibited. Well, you see what NVIDIA did um, just one or two months ago. They invested in a company and, and practically their investment was to just give the chips for the uh, AI work. Um, and, and in this kind of a situation, like the bar is raised really high. Like if you want to start and you need chips in the amount of $100 million, that's going right. to be a very tough start. And it, it's um, so uh, yeah. I'm 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 a little bit worried that even 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 if you bring a lot of democratization of AIs and a lot of techniques of of let's let's in in let's not build a new AI but let's fine tune an existing one and and make it be more specific for a specific activity. Um, there there is still kind of a um, the the entry point becomes a little bit more expensive than than otherwise. So I'm I'm a little bit worried. I'm a little bit worried about where this is going to take the entire you know, the entire space, the entire industry. Yeah, and we should get to the and Brian. We should, yeah, Brian. We should get into the human of it all because the subtitle of your book is creating a more human future, and this sort of ties into what we've been discussing. Let's not forget about us because you know we can build all these LLMs and they're just going to get more powerful, more powerful. Let's talk about the, how humans fit into this future, which you obviously felt strong enough to to make it as part of the subtitle of your book. So let's let's get into us 
little old humans here in the in the world of AI? That's a great question. I, I would say that the um, so the element creating a more human future portion of the book, right, which is the thread throughout all of it. That that stemmed from the questions that I was asking, like I mentioned that question in 2020 of what is it, what does it look like to create a more human future in the in the face of all this technological change? And I had initially thought that those were two separate considerations, and that you could hopefully point the influence and the and the market impact of these technologies as you're harnessing the economic potential, point that toward a more human future. That was my initial hypothesis. As I dug into the research and writing of the book and the interviews that I held, what I was sort of delighted to find out was that we've actually read a, reached a point in our sort of trajectory in, in, I guess, business, for lack of a better phrase. It's quickly becoming unprofitable to treat your organization like it's a large mechanical machine and your people like they're cogs in the machine. Um, I recently wrote an article that I'm not sure when this podcast is coming out, so I don't know if it'll be out yet, but called Treating People Like Cogs in the Machine Has Finally Met Its Match. And basically, dehumanizing work used to be profitable and treating people like cogs in a machine was, unfortunately, was profitable. And so you basically was up to individual integrity to decide to not lead in that way. And, um, and there was some economic benefit, but not like there will be in the future. I think we've already started to reach a point. You look at the Steve Ballmer era of Microsoft, which is sort of a case study on leading in a, an organization like as a large mechanical machine and the people in it are cogs versus Satya Nadella's era so far, right? From, from 2000, February 2014 to today, his example, even though, I mean, you could look at any leader and poke holes and say, well, wait a minute, we just had these layoffs or whatever. But all in all, the net leadership approach that Satya has taken is, I would call a social system. He's used the organization like a social system, not like a big machine. And he, at the time that he entered off the, the, the office of the chief executive, he said, uh, we need a new technology strategy, a new business strategy, and a new people strategy. And so instead of seeing that as just some you know, fluffy thing on the side that HR was going to take care of. He said, we need to focus on culture, right? And that's, and and today from an economic perspective, the stock, yeah, as of, you know, the last time I checked, which was I think yesterday or the day before, the stock price was trading at nine times what it was trading at when he entered um, the executive office. And so I think there's, and that's just one example, there's quite a few more, but the, it is no longer, it's quickly becoming unprofitable to, to dehumanize work and to, and to prioritize machines over humans. And so I think that that's, to me, that that's the element that I see in creating a more human future is that it's, it's not just about pointing whatever you have at a more human future. It's most AI initiatives that fail end up failing because of some kind of social problem inside of the organization, not a, not a technical problem. I'd be curious, Jerry, if you agree but that's another example where by creating a more human future now within your organization, you'll actually get more benefit out of the technologies. I think this is also, I mean, we are a creation of uh, Workforce 4.0. Um, that, that's the title of my new book that's going to come out in October. Um, it's it's like the the next industrial revolution. Um, and, and we've never been this kind of an organization where we created like a machine, whatever. If someone is just a cog in the machine. It's, it's like a living organism, living and growing and adapting and learning and, and, and an organism that is, is able to 
adjust. It's it's very much not um, in, aligned with the the ways that these things used to be. Um, and I, if if we can broaden a little bit the scope, because what you are talking here about is like the impact inside the enterprise, but like there is an impact in the society as well, because you create much more efficient companies. And then there will be some some substitution of jobs. There will be some areas where um, ent- enterprises will become very efficient, and you're gonna see more and more uh, profits, and and you're gonna see some monopolies in some areas. Do you see a future where we're gonna tax uh, AIs the same as we tax people because they generate income? I, I think that's a little speculative and I and I don't know that I disagree with you yet, but I haven't thought as much about taxing AI the way we tax people. Um, but I will say that I, I agree completely with what you said about how it doesn't just matter. It's not just important how you treat the people inside of your organization. It's also important how you treat your community that you're operating in and or communities and the market. And we're seeing a spot now where if you if you make a misstep in how you treat your people, well, 100 years ago or even 50 years ago, if you're, you know, ruling, you know, with an iron fist and you're you're being an absolute jerk to your employees, well, you might be one of the only places they can work in town or they might not have anyone else in their network that could get them to the type of job that they have now, so they're just going to stomach it. And now, you know, especially in the pandemic, I think we've seen with with people having so much more access and and spending so much more time online, they they've gotten an insight into how, and with things like Glassdoor and LinkedIn, we see all the job opportunities that are, that are out there. So many free educational resources. The world is now at your fingertips where you can get a job you know, anywhere around the world for free in a lot of cases, access all the educational resources and materials you would need to learn what you would need to do for that, you know, to get that job. And so I think that now we're seeing where the way, you know, the way that you treat your organization in, internally, but also the, the net societal impact of what you're doing in um, in terms of the way that you make your product, if there's a negative sus- sustainabil- impact from a sustainability perspective. Um, the, the data scientists, like we mentioned at the beginning of this of this discussion, um, you know, there's only 10,000 of them in the world. That means that there's a, they're on the upside of a, of a supply shortage, right? And so they've got a line waiting out the door of other high paying opportunities that the moment that they're either not proud of the work they're doing or don't feel connected to the meaning of it or think it's going to fail for some social reason or, or otherwise, they can they can leap to another, you know, a new job opportunity that's waiting for them. And so I think that, and at the same time, you also have consumers and investors and partners all demanding more of the, and more visibility and um, more transparency into in how things are being made and where they're being sourced from and what the net societal and global impact of them of these initiatives are not just the the cost and the value of a given product that's being generated but every piece of it and a misstep in any direction at, at best could lead to people quitting and at worst can lead to strikes like we're seeing in Hollywood or or boycotts from consumers but this Hollywood example is is quite good because it's it's like AI will be very transformative for their jobs. And I think there there needs to be a, a bigger conversation about how AI will transform the society. Like how, because we are living still in a world where we don't have enough money to take care of, of basic needs such as basic healthcare, basic education, 
basic, minimal, minimal stuff, like these basic needs, we are still discussing about this. How about this technology comes in? Maybe it will enable us to kind of make sure that this basic layer is taken care of, and then we compete from that uh, onward. Because it's 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 we are we are no longer with this. We are no longer going to live in the same paradigm as as we lived ten years ago. And and maybe it will enable uh, humankind to actually imagine living and functioning in a very different way than even ten years ago. That's what I'm I'm hoping for because but you know we as a humankind we always have a good a really good way of messing things up. But I'm I'm an optimistic. I am too. I, I'm absolutely an optimist too. And I, I love what you said about, I mean, yeah, it sounds like you're you're speaking a little bit in the direction of like a UBI kind of question, right? A universal basic income. Like if the technologies can take care of a lot of the repetitive transactional work, then, you know, and move us as humans up the work hierarchy toward more creative work, um, then does that mean that we can have some of our bases covered? Um, you know, if the technologies are able to create those things in mass, I um, optimistically, and and in terms of the vision I would cast for the future, I absolutely hope so. In terms of the complexity of getting from here to there, that's another story because there's a lot of profit that stands between here and there. There's a lot of um, partnership across public and private sector that would be required to get to that point. Um, a lot more trust that would need to exist than I think currently does um, across all parties. And so um, I'm hopeful that we can get there too. And I think probably we would take, I'd be curious your thoughts, like maybe it starts with a specific leader in a certain space that says, okay, for instance, right now with shareholders, um, you know, we have this, you know, all ever increasing, you know, profit and, 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 you know, shareholder value as one of our chief, uh, for any publicly traded company, one of the chief aims, right? And so imagine, I actually think I wrote this example in the book. If you came up with a way to manufacture, let's say, some kind of food that you manufacture 10 times more efficiently, you're going to make the same profit. So you'll make the same net profit, but you can reduce the cost by several orders of, you know, by, by not orders of magnitude, but by, let's say it's a, a, a fraction of the price. What is, how would shareholders react to that? So you're doing something amazing in the market where now people can have access to this food that you're creating. Why are we dumping this on enterprises? Like I, what I would say is let the enterprise do the profit and me as the government, I'm going to tax that profit and I'm going to manage it so that the people who are really in the need for food, they get it. They get it and, and they are being taken care of. And the companies are focused on actually producing profit, maximizing profit, being very competitive. Like in a sense, Microsoft, you're talking about Microsoft. Bill Gates, his ability to create money and to develop an enterprise that generated a lot of value is the true spirit of, of capital. But it's not necessarily his job to take that money and to redistribute it. Now, he made it now his job to actually, okay, I created this wealth and I'm going to use this wealth to do something in a different way for the for the society, but that's also the government's role, the society's role, the other organism that that should use that whatever whatever an enterprise is creating, whatever 
value the enterprise is creating, then redistribute it in a way or another towards us living better in, in principle. I, I like that. I think that um, I agree that we, you know, it's hard to say who, it, it's almost a question of who should that leader be? So I, I'm not saying that organizations, because we can't require, like you said, you can't require an enterprise to do something like that, right? That's not why they exist. At the same time, you know, at the, at the onset of the way that governments have been formed, it's not the government's job to feed individual people. It's their job to keep them safe. It's their job to, right? There's there's a lot of other jobs the government has, but it's not necessarily the government's job to feed people, just like it's not the enterprise job to feed people. So I think that our needs have evolved as society. And now there's this gray space where it's like, okay, whose job is it to step in? And so for me, I think because of my focus and interaction with enterprise leaders, I think that that's probably naturally, okay, hey, you have the power to rival governments, right? I mean, the the budget of a lot of these large, you know, multinational companies is enough to make a significant impact in the in the in the shape of society. So that's probably why I tend to focus on what what ways that they might be able to reimagine society and the value that they're putting out and the communities that they're that they serve. Um, more so than saying, here's how we can legislate, um, because that's just not as much my area of expertise as as on the enterprise side. It's it's funny, almost describing the Spider Man meme where they're all pointing at each other like who does this? Who's feeding the people? Are you feeding the people or not? Um, and, yeah. You know, on that subject, Brian, let's wrap things up by talking about, and this sort of like leads into it, but just so folks are, are more aware of it, the profitable good company. I mean, it kind of touched upon what you already uh, were discussing, but uh, for folks not familiar with, the, with with your organization, tell us what you're doing there. And and w- I guess that's pretty much the next part of your life. You've worked with some great companies like Accenture and Microsoft, but now the profitable good is going to take care of you on the back nine of life here. But uh, tell us about it. <laughs> I don't know if I'm at the back nine yet. I don't know <laughs> how we measure which which part we're at. But yes, um, I, I do. I, I started the Profitable Good Company because I felt I had been working with, like we talked about, Jerry, enterprise leaders, like, um, for instance, at a large chocolate company, multinational chocolate company that were trying to solve the question of how do we guarantee that there's no child labor in our supply chain, for example. And the things we came up with um, ultimately ended up running through a test of, and, and this is you know with a, with a good amount of discussion, but needed to, would need to run naturally through a test of, okay, does this work from a profitability? We we answer to shareholders. Does this work from a profitability perspective? And so, to me, I felt like there was this interesting space where I was seeing more and more. Well, one on the I was having these meetings with leaders from all over the world, Fortune 500 company leaders, C level executives, where we'd have mutual. C-level executive buy-in to go do something that would be a meaningful impact to the world. And we kept struggling to get to, even with that level of buy-in and with a, a great deal of strategy and and flying back and forth to each other's headquarters, we're really struggling to figure out how, how to make it fit within the sort of systemic context of both of our organizations and the market. And so that became a, a point of focus for me to say, well, I want to go try to figure that out. And some of what I came up with was that profitable, and the reason I, I coined sort of profitable good as a term, is that on the other side, outside of enterprises, you go to the broader market and profit has been conflated with greed. People see profit as, you know, you you see them used interchangeably. And, and I kept sort of running into this question of, huh, I'm hearing about all these greedy corporate leaders. And then I'm looking at all these people that are trying, we're trying, usually trying to solve, you know, global problems together. We're trying to figure out how to use 
profit to make that happen and to be able to stay in business so we can keep producing valuable products that people rely on. And I was wondering, where are those greedy? I know they're there. I know there's greedy people out there that are looking to exploit wherever they can to try to make more make more money. But um, I felt like there was more nuance to it. So what I created was a scale where on the one side you have greed, which is money at any costs. I'm willing to sacrifice anything for money. That's greed. The other side, you have altruism, which is good at any cost, which is I'm, I'm willing to give all my money away uh, or use the money that other people have given me to do good. And um, you know, on that side of things, right, we have 98% of, our, of the federal budget of the United States is made by for-profit companies, is tax from for-profit companies. So if every company in the world switched to altruism and started doing good at any cost, we, you know, I, a week maybe we'd last, maybe two before systemic collapse. So it's like, okay, what, 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 there has to be something in the middle. So in the middle is neutral, which is I make profit. And, you know, I, from, I think most corporate leaders today are here, which is I'm trying to make an honest living. So I do good if I could, but at the end of the day, I do answer for some degree of, of profit. And therefore I'm going to, you know, do my best to honor that. And when I have opportunities to do good, either personally or with, you know, any extra funds I have to give to nonprofits, I'm going to do that. And then I think there's this interesting space between neutral and altruism, which is profitable good. And an example of that, coming back to the chocolate example, if you're a chocolate company and you come out and there's not data to prove what the economic impact would be, which is part of why we weren't able to move forward at the time. But if you were able to come out and say, no, we can guarantee, like we partnered with the UN, we've done a lot of work, here's here's some transparency to what we did. We can absolutely 100% guarantee that these 20 chocolate bars, as you go into Halloween season, are 100%, there's absolutely no child labor in, the, in these chocolate bars. I think the profit, you know, from a profitability perspective, the economic impact would be enormous. And so in terms of profitable good as a, as a focus area, um, it could be the, the, the same in the same way it could be, okay, we want to guarantee there's no work, workplace safety incidents in our manufacturing plant. So it doesn't just have to be ESG focused. It could be anywhere around the organization where you want to somehow better the human experience um, internally or externally and um, finding ways to do that profitably so that you can stay in business. Sounds like Jerry's kind of company, right, Jerry? That's profitable good. That's that, that's that, that's right up your alley. I like the way it sounds, yeah. Awesome. He is a Brian Evergreen, the author of Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence and the founder of The Profitable Good Company. Brian, thanks so much for the time. I really wish you the best. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Brian. This has been The Great Digital Transformation with Gerard Zatvani. To participate in the conversation, go to gerardzatvani.com. The Great Digital Transformation is a production of Forbes Books.